Welcome to the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast, a podcast produced for the sheep industry by Sheep Connect New South Wales. Hi, I'm Megan Rogers, Manager of Sheep Connect New South Wales, the sheep industry extension work in New South Wales, which is funded by Australian Wool Innovation. Sheep Connect New South Wales has a membership of over 2,200 and our main aims are to help keep you and your sheep business up to date on the latest information about all things sheep. We hope you enjoy our podcast. It's time for you. In this episode of our podcast, we're joined by Gaira farmer Rob Kelly, who gives us a practical account of how he found first-time containment feeding, lambing those uh, breeding ewes in that containment area, which is something that we've don't hear a lot about and it's not something that um, is highly recommended how he found that experience and then really importantly the process of transitioning those breeding ewes and their lambs from containment back to pasture following a change and break in the season. Rob gives us a really practical insight into how he found that process and talks about a lot of the management implications that came with that uh, containment feeding exercise as well as some of the um, the considerations that, that he would factor into going forward with more containment feeding in the future. Our Sheep Connect New South Wales Regional Coordinator, Dr Fiona MacArthur, hosted the webinar, which was uh, a very good and interesting conversation, which we hope you'll enjoy. So thank you very much, Megan. And welcome everyone to Webinar Wednesday. It's wonderful to see some lovely widespread rain across New South Wales and I truly hope that everyone's getting their share. Uh, it's no doubt that 2018-19 certainly been a tough few years for all producers across New South Wales. The difficult conditions have really left us, you know, navigating through unfamiliar territory and wondering what our next step will be in order to tackle to get our way through the drought. So today I have with me Rob Kelly. Rob approached Megan and myself in early 2019 on the back of a meeting that he had had with his benchmarking group in the New England, which is in the north of the state. The group had been discussing several ideas on the best way to manage the dry conditions up here and they'd identified drought lotting as a potential for the region. In the New England, however, though, it's fairly uncommon practice to have drought lotting up here. So we um, they were really after a lot more information. So that's why they approached Ship Connect New South Wales. And as a result, we led a series of webinars and Jeff Duddy ran them with us. If you go onto the Sheep Connect New South Wales website and click on the resources bar, if you're not familiar with it, and you go onto tools and information, you'll see all our webinars there. And they come up as boxes, which you can see on the screen. And these are our two webinars for the confinement feeding we did with Jeff Duddy. So you can go in there and listen to them um, whenever you need to. So we've asked Rob here today really as a follow-up to these two webinars. As part of um, Rob doing drought lotting, he did that because of the Sheep Connect information that came out. So we've asked him to go through his experiences and what he learned for us. So without further ado, I'll invite Rob to today's webinar. Off you go, Rob. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Megan. And 
uh, Fiona, for these for the introduction. Uh, glad that you could all join us on this. Um, so, yep, um, this is the first time first time drought lighting for me, and this is uh, my perspective on what I found throughout the whole process. So, a little bit about uh, Mount William, in case there's people from well outside the area that don't have a full understanding of the New England. Uh, we're 1250 metres above sea level, 900 millimetre rainfall roughly. Our three properties, 1,470 hectares and our general running conditions of the stock that we run. We breed merinos and I trade cattle. We have naturalised and improved pastures and we have intentional rotational grazing set up on 700 hectares. So the roadmap of what I'm going to cover today is why we started, getting started, adapting along the way, complications and resolutions, transitioning to pasture, positives and negatives and in the future. So the reasons we started, uh, you can see the rainfall for those two periods was quite low, 40% of, of normal. Um, this coincided with hotter and windier conditions that meant that our feed base was the lowest, the lowest that we'd seen it. And we had no summer or spring rain predicted uh, in the coming months. So we had to work out what we were going to do. So I'm close interrupt you there and just yep. ask you for people outside of the region to give them a bit of an idea. What do you call a load feed base for the New England during winter? What did you have versus what would you have expected? So the general recommendations are at the end of, end of winter, which is August and into September, that we should leave a base of 1,100 kilos of dry matter per hectare. Um, and I have in the past, during dry conditions, got down to 900 kilos, knowing with the intentional rotational grazing that I can, I can get that back up with rainfall. This year, in August, we were looking at 700 kilos of dry matter per hectare. Um, under our normal conditions, the user supplemented six weeks prior to lambing and lambing paddocks arrested four months. Uh, the Australian sheep flock was at its lowest level on, on record. Um, for me, this meant that sheep will be in high demand when the drought breaks and we also had uh, two generations or human generations of genetics that we wanted to protect with our sheep. And I needed stock on hand when a drought broke, so I had something to drive my income moving forward. I also wanted to get the stock off the pasture so we could maximise the ground cover for when it did rain, so I could capture more of that water for the pasture growth and, and so I had less runoff from heavy storms if that did happen. Uh, reading through the literature prior to all this on the Sheep Connect website, um, it, it sort of blew my mind that we would get a 16% increase in efficiency of feeding sheep in a smaller area than over the large paddocks because instead of walking around the large paddock, even though if you're feeding they're still walking around a large paddock burning off quite a lot of energy. So to me that was going to be quite a, quite a bit of uh, food saving and costs. Um, Could you just tell us Rob there, what consultants did you find the most valuable before you set up the drought lotting? Uh, well I think um, apart from the Sheep Connect, which I've said not the consultants there, was the um, local land service, particularly the vets. Now they've got a lot of information and literature out there talking to people in backgrounds. Um, so we went to them. 
the resellers, the local resellers, uh, put me in touch with um, product consultants and nutritionists. Uh, in the starting up, this was my first time ever of doing this, um, and so I needed to I needed to needed it to be cost effective and time efficient, and using the existing infrastructure that I that I had in place. Um, our current business wasn't set up for feeding large quantities of feed out to livestock. Your business wasn't set up in that way, Rob. Could you just tell us what a existing infrastructure you would have had so that we can all get a feeling on sort of the base level you started at? Okay. So basically I have a 80 horsepower tractor, um, a pencil auger that I can use with our little 25 tonne silo and two small feed out trailers. Uh, I have water infrastructure um, pretty much piped for the rotational grazing system that I have in place. And around the sheds and the yards, we have um, lots of small holding paddocks. So the fencing infrastructure was there, the water was there to enable me to use those paddocks for the confined feeding. Um, in, our, in our general circumstance, what we do is we have a large, a large portion of um, low quality feed in winter, which we then supplement the sheep for. Um, I use self-feeders um, so that I could regulate the intake. Um, in the initial period, the dry year was going to require seven megajoules of energy and our use in the middle of lactation were going to be 17 megajoules. So I needed to be able to have something that I could uh, change those requirements with. And I also had the possibility of lambing in the lots and through that literature, the best way of lambing would be to have the self-feeders there for the ewes that were lambing. Um, and I also had the water infrastructure that was in place. There were some, there were some dams and I had troughs. As we can see, there's a, there's a feedlot there um, and there's our water infrastructure. Uh, we've only got a small water trough that we have watering 500 years. And the feeders, just the self feeders that were set out. Um, I had a, a feed mill plant that um, produced the pellets that I was using and they had an auger truck and they were filling my, they just filled them up when I needed them. So that made my labour efficiency a lot better and I didn't need to invest in more machinery. We move on from that slide, Robert. It's interesting that the trough's very small in the picture. You say you don't need big troughs. Could you just take us through your rationale for that? Yep. Uh, so the, the bigger the trough, the more water that's sitting there to go stagnant. Um, watering stock to me is all about your flow rate. So you, if you can have a constant flow rate of high quality water, then you'll be able to water as many as many stock as you need. For instance, um, the mob that I was watering in here was a, a mob of 500 ewes and lambs. The flow rate into the trough was 100 litres a minute, which um, comes out at 60,000 litres over a 10 hour period, which is which is ample enough to, to water. My ewes were, would drinking about 14 litres a day at the maximum, so that's 10,000 litres. So it was easily, easily meeting my needs. Uh, adapting along the way. As I said, this is our first time in doing it. Um, we set it up as we did, so I needed to do my pre-lambing health check. So that's the worm egg counts on the use, the vaccinations, the drenching that needed to, to be done. Uh, I had to meet the changes of the nutritional requirements of the sheep. So in the initial period, um, we set up 
with a 12% protein pellet that had 11 megajoules of energy. Um, it, was a, it was a cheaper ration and we were feeding a little bit less. As we got to lambing, the point of lambing and through lambing, I then moved to a 16% protein pellet with 15 megajoules of energy. So they didn't have to consume uh, that, that much more feed. Well, just before you go on there, Rob, one of the things that really came out of the Sheep Connects webinar from my memory was the importance of hay and roughage. Did the pellets that you fed, you haven't mentioned hay, did it contain a roughage or did you feed out hay as well? Uh, when I was talking to the nutritionist, they suggested that the, there was enough roughage in the pellet to get me by. And um, at the time that we set this up, there wasn't a lot of local hay and a price of hay was extremely high and it was quite high compared to um, the energy energy and protein that I was getting out of the pellets was a lot cheaper than what it would, would have been for hay. So no, I didn't start off with feeding hay. However, I'll get into it a little bit later. We started to feed some hay out um, at lambing. My initial plan was by going into the drought lot, uh, we, would, we would feed from August through to October when I started lambing. That would be three months plus a paddock spill before that. Um, spring rainfall, summer rainfall, we should have had some feed on the ground, which we didn't. So I then had to um, move into move into the possibility and which we did lambing in a drought lot. Uh, Pre-lambing pre -lambing supplements. Um, let's see, our biggest concerns prior to lambing were going to be hypocalcemia and through lambing was going to be pregnancy toxemia. So once again, talking to nutritionists, um, I was recommended uh, loose lick, uh, which was high in minerals and trace elements plus vitamins that were needed prior to lambing. So I, so I fed that out as long as, as with the pellets. Um, lambing in the drought lot, this was one of those unsure, unsure areas that I was going to be in. Again, we had plenty of shade and shelter in our lots. So how I went about that was I spoke to our, the feed mill that was delivering me the feed and asked them to come in the early afternoon um, the idea was when it was hot all the sheep would be under the shade so I wouldn't have wouldn't be hunting sheep away from the feeder also the sheep should have had a feed in the morning so they would have had a full belly they would have had their drink and they'd be lying down to come back for a feed in in the afternoon um, I made sure that our pellets and the hay when I finally got it I had feed tests for that so I could make sure of the quality quality was right for the requirements of the sheep and um, yeah, I always was asking for help, particularly through the local land service vets. If any problems arose, um, I'd ring them up, get in touch with them and ask them how I might be able to help with any problems that I was coming up with. Uh, so, yep, that was a load of hay that just came in, much to that horse's needs as well. And um, just a few lambs it provided a place for the lambs to play, a little haven as well as a food source. So the complications and resolutions, once again, we're thinking on our feet as we're moving along. Um, I wasn't expecting to see too much preg tox or hypercalcemia, but um, I started to see in the early, early stages of when I first started to lamb, um, I started to see some pregnancy toxemia. Um, we treated the animals to minimise loss once we, once that happened. Ironically, that was, in the, in the end, I worked out that that was brought on by the rain um, because the rain actually swelled the pellets up in the feeder 
and the and the pellets couldn't flow through the feeder at the rate they needed to, and that that happened right on the point of the first mob lambing. Um, initially, when I was setting up the self feeders, uh, I had them flowing too fast, so my sheep were eating excess and they were getting a little bit fat, which I didn't need them to be because it was costly. Um, at the time that I cut them back, that was that was when a rain happened. Um, then the sheep did not get enough feed, so it gave them a gave them a pinch. I lost a couple. Um, so then I opened them back up to help them out and some gorged themselves a little bit. Um, while there were no losses, there were signs of lemonitis. So I had to get around that issue as well by, by really balancing the, the feed requirement. Um, lamb marking rates, um, it really surprised me. I was expecting a much lower lamb marking rate. Um, our lamb marking rate was 3% down on what we normally normally have and given Given the um, we we landmark later than most because we're lambing later than most in our area, um, the stories that I was hearing about landmarking rates were were quite low, um, and also literature that I'd read about lambing in the feedlot suggested that we wouldn't uh, the landmarking would be down. So I was quite surprised when we were when we were only down as little as we were. Um, so the Actually, Rob, before you go on, that's that's really quite interesting that you didn't take too much of a hit in the landmarking, and as you said, it surprised you. Is there? Can you attribute that to anything? Uh, do you think? I think because the sheep were in small areas and they're on the self feeders, they weren't walking that far. But I'd say as well, the system that we have in place of the intentional rotational grazing where the sheep have used to me being around them all the time, I'm moving them quite often and I'm using ewes and moving ewes and lambs, that because they're used to that, it was no stress that they're in a small area and I was I was around them. Um, so the danger of rain, I mentioned before there about the pellet swelling up, but we have a slightly sandy soil, so as you can imagine, all the sheep coming into the feeders feeding all the time caused some erosion. We had some rain, uh, which there ended up being puddles, puddles around and um, lambs walking into that, into that area. Uh, maintaining constant feed supply. So we were using a local mill that had a, had a truck. If something happened to the truck, like the truck broke down or the mill couldn't get enough of their supply in at the time, then I was going to run short of feed. There was a thought that I had on that. So I made sure that our silo that I had was full of pellets that I could feed out. And whenever the truck came, I was trying to put several tonnes of the pellets in the truck, in the silo at the same time. So transitioning um, out to the pasture. We did have some rainfall, which was, which was limited between October and December. So we did have some pasture growth. So I knew there was a pasture base pasture base there. Um, there was ground cover there, so I expected more growth with rain. Um, the timing of the transition was going to be critical. If I let them out too early, they were still going to continue to damage the pasture a little bit and the nutrition would be limited for those ewes that have now all lambed and the lambs are growing during lactation. If I let them out too late, um, the feed would advance a fair, uh, too quickly in front of the sheep and it would lose quality. So I was trying to balance that, putting them out before we had too much grass, but enough grass that we knew we could keep on top of it. Uh, animal health through this time is critical. So we made sure that the vaccinations 
well, up to date as you sheep going on to quite high quality pasture um, for any of the any of the diseases that are out there. Uh, made sure their tummies were full. Um, so so having their having their tummies full before they went out so that they weren't gorging themselves on the pastures. And I was putting them out in the early afternoon. So they were full, they were going out, they were having a feed, they were coming back in and having more pellets. And then after those four days, I, I then um, let them out and let them uh, go, into the, go into the paddocks. So now we move on to the positive and negatives of, of the um, whole operation. So the animal condition score stayed um, very similar right through. The ewes maintained their weights. Um, our lambing percentage, um, yeah, it was it was it was good. Um, our pasture recovery, like I was really happy with our lambing percentage. Our pasture recovery, our pastures did bounce back quite quite well after we've got the rain, which meant that I've had more males on. I was able to capture a lot of that rainfall. I still have quite a few dams that um, don't have any water in them, and there was less labour required. Generally, in our normal normal feeding, I would have I would have more greater smaller mobs, which I'm trail feeding on the ground, so that's taking me quite a while. And the truck would come in, fill the feeders up, and off they go again. The early mortalities that we saw um, that really caught me off guard and a bit by bit by surprise. Um, but as we said, we were thinking on our feet and moving along. The cost, see the pellets and hay is more costly than than the grass um, and the cost did start getting up there a bit, um, particularly when I started to lose a couple of ewes with um, pregnancy hoxemia, I wanted to make sure that there was um, plenty, of, plenty of feed there for them. Um, yeah, we really, there was, it was a little bit more demanding on the family time. During that period, I wasn't, I was very reluctant to, um, to leave while we had the sheep in there, just in case something, something happened to go wrong and I needed to be there on hand to, to sort the problem out. And uh, yeah, learning on the way, like um, with, the, with the preg talks, you know, I got caught short a couple of times. So it really was demanding to think on my feet to overcome problems as we moved. Uh, it was, the process was very rewarding, but it was challenging at the same time. At times we were running quite blind. Um, as much as you can read about this, there's no better experience than, than time on the ground and actually going through the whole process. And the decision for this, for the drought lot, was made quite quickly. So in the future, um, a couple of my paddocks that I had set up were on the western side of western side of our house and our sheds and um, even though there was pine trees covering it, the amount of dust with the August and September winds with with dry areas and no grass, the amount of dust and the amount of cleaning of the house and the sheds from that dust. So in the future, I'd make sure that they're on, on the eastern side um, of, of, our, of our areas. Uh, additional infrastructure, yes, to go down this path again, um, I would probably put in more storage. I would have a, put in a hay shed, um, larger, larger silos to store feed so I could have it on hand um, instead of buying at the higher high cost time. Um, as a rule, 
as a rule, the way I've done it in the past is um, by trading cattle, having no cattle on when feed is short and having the cattle on when my feed comes away and starts to grow, um, I'm able to try and balance my hay shed, what I call my hay shed in my paddock. It's the, it's the grass in the paddock rather than buying in hay. So buying in large quantities of feed is a, is a totally new concept for me. And I'd also look at um, uh, better feed out bins. Uh, better utilisation of the scanning data. Um, looking at the pregnancy tox, toxemia and that, I would, I would age score the foetuses, which we do anyway in some of the breeding flocks, and I would then split those ewes into the early lambs in the first cycle and the lambs in the late, so I can really adjust the feed requirements to, to this. Um, and more drought lots and reduce the size. So my twins, I didn't lamb any twin ewes in the confinement area, I, I left them out. Um, so obviously with the splitting off of the early pregnancies and lambing twins in there, and if I was to do more mobs, then I would have smaller paddocks. It's also mostly a recommendation um, that you have smaller mobs if you're going to lamb in drought lots. Um, our biggest mob, which was the 500 ewes, was bigger than what, what most suggest, but um, it seemed we got away with the, with the lamb marking rate for that. So thank you. I hope that's um, been helpful and um, look forward to any questions. Great. Thank you, Rob. That was very informative. A lot of information in there, a lot of trial and error by the sounds of things. But um, I'll pass you back to Megan now, everyone, because Megan's going to run us through the questions that you've been bringing in. Good thing that um, has happened. We've got a stack of questions coming in. So I'll start with, with the first one, which was from Laura. Thanks for joining us today, Laura. Um, Laura wants to know what space allowance you had um, allocated for the ewe and the lamb and were the twins managed differently? So I think the, the twin question may have already been answered, but yeah, so how much space did you allow, Rob? Rob's just doing a quick calculation on his phone there. So yes, I do believe he just said that he didn't put the twins in the drought lot to answer that part of the question why he's doing his sum. And that's one of his thoughts for the future, but he's finished with his calculator now. So, so Rob. I was just trying to work it out roughly if you wanted to um, square metres or, or that. So I'll just basically say um, if the mob of 500 ewes was on, on a three-hectare three paddock. Um, the, ne the next mob of, of um, 300 ewes was on a two-hectare paddock, and that was – Roughly, roughly the size of those that I had. So were they existing? That they're existing small paddocks that you had, Rob. Yes, they're existing small paddocks. So I did have that was that was two of the mobs. I did have five small paddocks that I had that were like that. They were between yeah between three and one hectare, and I just utilised them. Yep, and so. You had them in a small enough paddock that they weren't walking and walking and walking, but they had, you know, more space than what a traditional type containment area might be with the, the um, area per ewe and lamb. Interesting, and I guess another point that I'd take from that relating back to infrastructure, is that you didn't overcapitalise and have to go through a, a development process to, to make that available. You've used your existing infrastructure. Yes, that, yes, that's correct. Um, it was important to me. I didn't want to go to too much cost in the initial period uh, before I knew how well it would work or whether it would be a success or a failure. 
And if I don't use them, if I didn't use it again, I'd have infrastructure there that um, wouldn't be used that was costly. Yep. Yeah, I think that's such an important consideration, particularly when you you know bringing large numbers of animals in to feed and and um, you know just the cost of of that exercise. So you can certainly um, you know invest a lot of money in the exercise. And so yeah, I think that's a, a good good. Um, uh, and I'll, I'll also add there with the with the feed truck coming in that the side that the side of those of those small paddocks was accessible off our main road so they didn't have to go tearing down a paddock two kilometres over a, over a dirt track to, to fill the feeders. And I would think that if if I didn't have the access like that then they wouldn't have wouldn't have filled the feeders up for me. Okay. Yeah that's a good point. I've got a, a question from Henry now, just regarding whether you've put in any anything in place to manage the erosion around your high traffic area. Uh, yes. So, so only basically there's well one of the one of the lots that's there has has a dam has a dam down the bottom of it um, that captures that captures it. Um, I would I would look at putting um, large rubber matting underneath the feeders themselves to stop the dirt uh, moving away from the feeders. Once once I saw this happen once. Um, I did actually bring some gravel in, gravel in with the tractor, and move the move the feeders from time to time. Uh, at the at the bottom of the feedlots, uh, there were there were areas of of um, there was a double fence that had pine trees plus plus grass in, so that slowed the sediment up before it got into any any waterways. And there was grass from being shut up that that slowed it down once it got to the end of the feedlot. It had quite a nice filter. Yes. Yeah. Um, Andrew's asked a question with regards to what your vaccination program before letting stock out was. Yep. So that's our. That's just your your general um, five in one or six in one vaccine, making sure that it's it's all up to date for the ewes and for the lambs. So obviously the ewes were done. Ewes were done pre lambing. Um, then the lambs were done at lamb marking, which in the lamb marking took place um, only two weeks before they were let out. So they're just about to come back in now for their third vaccination. Excellent. Thank you. Um, Henry's got another question for us. It's going to take me a little while to read all of this out. It's a little long one. Um, outside of the fact that you use a regularly handled and cell grazed, is there anything else that you could have contributed to the solid lambing? And for those that don't cell graze or don't regularly handle sheep, what can we do to mitigate lambing issues? Ooh. Um, yeah, that's a that's a tough one. I, I guess that's what I'm saying with them. With me being around them, they got quite used of me. Um, I guess. I guess the use of the self self feeders self feeders helped, and having the truck come in the heat of the day, that meant that most of the ewes and the lambs were away from those feeders at that time, so there was minimal interruption of the sheep. Um, making sure that you've you've got your the condition score of the sheep is correct. Um, 
uh, healthier, like the sheep that are in good condition are going to be less likely to walk away from their lambs and have less less mismothering. And um, I know that can I know that can catch us all all a little bit all a little bit at times. Um, we're trying to trying to do it the most cost effective way. But I guess sometimes if the sheep were a little bit light in condition, then you know there, there's less chance of them taking to their lambs. And um, having having the shelter points for privacy. So um, if you're able to enough number of trees around, uh, that was one of my reasons for feeding the hay out. That you know having a few bales of hay in the paddock meant that that was a nice quiet spot. If some sheep weren't grazing, that they could lie with their lambs. So just allowing them to have that little bit of privacy. Thanks, Rob. I'd probably just add to that, just that point I made a little while ago about, you know, the, the training of the animals. If, if you do plan on doing uh, some containment feeding, starting early, and even if you're bringing them from large, vast paddocks into smaller holding yards or into laneways to get the animals quite used to the, um, you know, the, the program, the vehicles, the feed cart, the method of delivery of feeds, something else. I mean, you know, we... we I often don't give sheep enough credit, I don't think, for their ability to adjust to different situations and they, they can adjust. You just need to be a little bit patient and start early. That's my experience is that, you know, if you if you start early, um, you know, then things are going to run a lot more smoothly for you than if you're in a hurry to get some, some animals adjusted before landing starts, for example. So thanks for that question, Henry. And Megan, yeah, just on that, if, I think if you do start early, then you can be making sure your sheep condition score and you've got your rotation, your ration right before they get to that late stage of pregnancy and early lambing. Absolutely, yeah. And that, that's come through in your presentation too, Rob, that you, you knew what the requirements were all the way along and kept reviewing that. Um, Andrew's got another question with regards to the mineral supplementation. So did you change them from um, the, did you change anything with the mineral uh, supplementation when they were released, i.e. onto the green feed? Um, no, no, I just, I just, um, they had their, they had their lick um, pre-lambing just at the start and then um, they've just gone back out into the, out into the paddock. And um, I just believe that from, from what I've looked at that there are what they will be getting off the grass now. Um, once they're settled onto it, will will adequately meet their needs. So Rob, could you just clarify that a little bit more for Andrew? So they got the pre-lick, pre-lambing, pre and then it stopped. So how long did you give it for? And did they just then go back onto their ration and then onto the pasture? Yeah. So they had the they had a pre-lamb lick, and they also had some lick, um, a post-lamb lick, um, just for a period of two weeks. Um, then, then they just had their normal feed, and then it was it would have been um, about three weeks three weeks after I stopped the the lick um, that they went out onto the pasture. How old are the lambs now? The lambs now are coming up to the sixteen weeks. And, and the way the, the the bit of wet weather and a few other maintenance have meant that um, yes, my weaning is my weaning's about two weeks later than what it would normally be. Nothing like a bit of wet weather. <laughs> I know we should we shouldn't um and I, no, I guess you're not complaining. The wet weather's been a, a fabulous addition, and you know I'm no, sure no. that 
quite stacks of questions today. So hopefully, you know, what we're talking about today is really going to give some people some some insight into a successful release out of the containment. The next one's from Greg. Um, just with regards to the paddock that you had the two hectares with the 300 years, I was just wondering what land percentage in that situation was. Okay, so that was the main that was the main news that were in that. Yep. And um, and the maiden the maidens actually landed at 80, 83%, which was two percent above my general maiden lambing for the singles maidens. So so it was actually Yeah, so it was it it was really when I got that mob of views into landmark, um, at at that time I I had two young two young blokes that wanted a bit of experience and I thought, well, this is not going to be too bad. I've got a mob of 300 maiden ewes, I'm probably going to expect 180 lambs. Yeah, that'll be a nice, easy half day for them. Um, brought them in, started drafting them off and then had to ring up another person to come and help me because there was no way that they were going to be able to do the job that I needed to for the afternoon. So it was a great surprise. A great problem to have. Yes. Caitlin's just asked a question. How did you figure out how many kilos per head per day the ration was. So a, a bit of a feed budgeting question there from Caitlin. Thanks for joining us, Caitlin. Yep. Uh, so we have the, um, all the resources available through, through well, it's on Sheep Connect itself, but um, the Lifetime U and all the other literature out there that, that will let us know, the AWI literature out there that that lets you know the requirements of the animals um, at each stage. So it, you can go through to see what your 50 kilo you, 60 kilo you, or 70 kilo you needs um, early on in, say, when they're dry, early stage of pregnancy, mid-pregnancy, late pregnancy, um, and, and into lactation. So, for instance, just on a quick... Quick calculation there, a dry ewe requires the seven megajoules of energy for her daily requirements. So if I'm feeding a pellet that's got 11% megajoules of energy, she need, she, you know, she'll need 600 grams a day of that, of that feed. But if we're getting up to a lactating ewe that needs 15 megajoules of energy and I've got a 15% um, megajoule energy pellet, which is easy to work out, she needs requires one kilo of that. However, if we're back to the 11 kilo one, then she needs 1.5 kilos. Um, so there are the Sheep Connect workshops, so say that that do will deal with the feed budgeting moving forward. But that's that's roughly how I did it and how I managed as I went through. So um, David's got a question here now. What month were the sheep released from the drought lot? Um, and he said, were the lambs weaned before being released? So we've ob obviously answered that question. But yeah, what month were the sheep released from the drought lot? Um, I, wanted a, yeah, I wanted a Christmas break like everyone else, so I let them out on Christmas. <laughs> but that, that's pretty close to right. No, it was just, it was, it was um, yeah, it was, it was about the 28th of December. Um, so we'd had, we'd had some uh, rainfall as I said, early early in October and then a little bit in November, but not much. And um, three days three days before Christmas, we had um, 40 mils, and that was over two falls. And when I looked at the pasture then and could see what was coming in front of me um, and the 
the Bureau's forecast had changed by that stage to suggest that we may have seen a little bit more rain. So um, I just said, right, well, I can see that the feed's going to grow. There's enough feed in the paddocks now on a feed budget to get the sheep by. Um, the the pasture budget that I looked at suggested that there was going to be enough feed with that rainfall that we got. Um, I didn't want to leave the transition too late, so so that's when I that's when I made it. So they've been out just over a month now. Well, I've just written a little note here that you passed your feed budget, and that basically is a, a bit of a segue into our question from Chloe which is how you we did you wean the sheep off the pellets or were they cut off once onto the pasture and did it affect the sheep at all? And I think you may have sort of got a prelude to that, to answering that question, talking about your feed budget back in the pasture. So did you want to give us a bit of a, a rundown on, on how that was and, and how important knowing what the dry matter and the quality of your pasture is? Yeah, so as we said, when we were letting them back out, we released them in the afternoon for four days. So they were getting some grass and coming back in and eating pellets. And I certainly know from going around the feeders that the lambs were the lambs were at that stage um, eating quite a lot of pellets. Um, so, so yeah, so I did do that transition out. Um, and generally, generally I'm doing a pasture budget pasture budget every week or every two weeks and and um, I've been doing them regularly with the grazing system so I'm guessing you know I would say now well not guessing I'd say now every time that I'm moving stock I'm doing I'm doing a, I'm doing a pasture budget to know what's in front and what's behind and and when I was doing a transition when I was doing a transition while we still only had still only had um, 900 kilos of, of pasture on the ground um, well, I still hadn't bought any trade cattle, and roughly, roughly for us, I can work out that we're going to get um, one kilo, one kilo of dry matter per hectare per mil of rainfall. Sorry, ten kilos. So that forty mil was going to give us uh, four hundred kilos of dry matter on top of what we had, um, and and working out my stocking rate, working out working out the stocking rate that I was going to have then that was going to be enough there was going to be enough quality feed there for those animals for for a month um, with the grazing system that I have. But I did also want to just let you know that in the handout section if you quickly um, click on that now's your chance um, there's also a, a publication releasing sheep from containment feeding and that's available there for managing sheep but there's one wholly on, on releasing sheep from containment feeding so Click on the little triangle next to handouts and if you want to grab that now, click on that to download it. Aside from that, I'll pop it on the website when I put the recording up, but it's on thewool.com and if you just um, uh, type in the search bar, releasing sheep from uh, containment, uh, that'll come up in, in the search function there. Fiona, did you have anything you wanted to add now? No, I just to thank Rob for coming along and um, thank everyone for participating and their questions. I think it's been a really good discussion and the input coming from the audience has been fantastic. So thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of It's Time For You, the Sheep Connect New South Wales podcast. 
We'd appreciate it if you could share this with, within your networks. You can also, if you haven't already, subscribe to the AWI podcast, The Yarn. We'd love for you to stay in contact with Sheep Connect New South Wales and you can do this in a number of ways. You can join our network by visiting our website, www.sheepconnectnsw.com.au. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Sheep Connect NSW. And hopefully we might see you at some of our workshops and events that we run throughout New South Wales. Thanks again for joining us today on It's Time For You and hopefully we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.